thank you for your hospitality. Um, it's just encouraging to hear what the Lord is doing in your association and hear the testimonies and to spend some time with Brother John and hear his vision. Um, it's very encouraging to me. As, as uh, was read from Romans chapter 1, I feel, I feel very encouraged by the truth of the gospel here. We're going to be in Roman, or pardon me, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 in just a minute. And uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, as you're finding that, we'll, we'll kind of remind ourselves when we begin the New Testament, of course, we begin with the Gospels, the theological biographies of Jesus, and we move on to Acts, which is the story of the Holy Spirit propelling the church outward in witness to the Gospel. And then we have the letters of Paul, Paul's letters to communities. Uh, if you've ever noticed, in decreasing order of size, the longest letters and then the shorter ones, and then Paul's letters to individuals, again, in decreasing order of size. And then we end up at the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is a fascinating book for several reasons. It's, it's a letter. It's a sermonic letter. It's like a, a sermon in letter format. And, and we don't know who wrote it. It's, it's interesting because uh, unlike most of the other letters in the New Testament, which say, you know, this is written by Paul or this is written by Peter, it, it doesn't explicitly name the author. Now, the, the recipients of the letter clearly understood whom it was written by, and they recognized it as coming with apostolic authority. If you look in chapter 2, the writer speaks of receiving these things from the eyewitnesses. And in chapter 13, he speaks of knowing Timothy, the companion of Paul. So this is a letter that comes with recognized apostolic authority. But, but did Paul write it, or did Apollos write it, or did Barnabas write it, or did Luke write it? There was an early church father named Origen in the, in the 200s, and he had a famous quip about it. He said, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Only God knows. And, uh, you know, we don't know. Uh, but we do recognize it as, as God's word to us. Sometimes now, you know, I'm teaching at a seminary, and we have students with very short attention spans raised on Cartoon Network and things like that. So I have to use mnemonic devices to help them. So we have Hebrews. I have a mnemonic device here. We say Hebrews reminds us of he Brews, right? Now, I'm from Kentucky. It's dangerous if we start saying, we're not talking about bourbon. We're talking about coffee. I think we have, uh, uh, we have uh, some pictures of coffee shops in Louisville. And uh, I, I don't know what it's like in, in, in uh, Oklahoma, but in Louisville, Kentucky, there's great loyalty to coffee. And there, there are people, I mean, if you go in our church parking lot, there are bumper stickers. People declare their loyalty. You know, that the Heine Brothers bumper sticker, the Java, the Quills, the Starbucks... Um, it's a coffee culture. And uh, all this is, I guess, people declaring, this coffee's better. This one's superior. This one's the best. This one is more tasty. And so my memory device for Hebrews is that Hebrews is about who is best and who is superior and who is the best and the better and the most. And actually, it, more than 25 times in the book of Hebrews, we have the Greek word better, more, better, best applied to Christ. And the author of Hebrews is lifting up the person of Christ and the certainty of his saving work as the best thing. And, and yes, why is the author doing this? And as you begin reading through the book of Hebrews, it becomes very clear that, that he's doing this because the congregation to which he is writing is, is being tempted to deny their loyalty to Christ. They're being tempted to fall back into their old way of life. He's writing to early Jewish Christians and they're undergoing some kind of suffering or some kind of persecution. 
And it's, it's, they're undergoing this temptation to fall back into the old way of life. And he's saying, no, look, look at, it doesn't make any sense to go back to the, the temple and the institutions and the festivals. All those things were shadows that pointed to the reality that is Christ. And he is far better and far superior than any of those anticipations. Now, at the same time that we have this exaltation of Christ and the reassurance of his work is certain and finished, you have the book is punctuated with these strong warning passages. Five strong warning passages. In fact, the one we're going to look at here in a minute is one of those warning passages. And, and people who, uh, who write about the book of Hebrews have a hard time fitting these together. I was... Um, Louisville, if you've never ever been there, is a city of parks. In fact, the guy who designed New York City Park System, Olmsted, designed the Louisville Park System. And it's really, really very nice public parks. And I was running around one of the parks um, as I was preparing the sermon. And it has a one-way loop for cars. And I saw this picture that's not coming through very well. <laughs> there was not a flood at the time. But it did, it did, the sign said, do not enter. And, and, you know, it's for the cars that get going the wrong way around the one-way loop, which I've seen happen. And it's a frightening thing because you're like, you're waving at them. You're like, well, go back, go back. This is the wrong way. You're going to run into somebody. And those warnings are like that as you read the book of Hebrews. He's like, watch out. This is wrong way. Go back. Danger. And so we have those two together. And sometimes commentators have a hard time fit, fitting them together. Like, how is this the same message? But, but I, I, let me give you an analogy to help understand how this message fits together. I, ha, I have three small children, three daughters, age seven and under, and two of them are learning to ride bi- bikes right now. They're in the training wheel stage. And, and I, I've literally run down a hill behind one of them who's scared she's going to turn over and say, Daddy's right here. I'm not going to let you fall. I'm right here. I'll, st- I'll hold the bike. Right? Words of great assurance and comfort reminding her who I am, what I'll do for her. Right? And at the same time, we've also said... If you pull out into the alley again without looking, you could be killed, right? It is very dangerous. We live in a city. And, and so there's these words of great warning, you know, watch, what are you doing? This is dangerous. But also words, don't worry, I'm here, I'm watching after you. And that's what we find in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at one of these warning passages. And I, we have the habit in my church of, of standing when we read Scripture. I don't know if you guys do this too. But let me invite you to stand as we read from the book of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and following. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you speak to us through your word. And God, I am inadequate to convey your word, but we pray your Holy Spirit would speak through it and you would open our ears and hearts and minds to to believe and we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm just going to go through this uh, verse by verse. In beginning verse 7, I want to start with the little word so, or in some translations, the word thus. And this is a little bitty connecting word that points back to what went before. And it says, in light of what I just said, the author of Hebrews is saying, in light of what I just said, let me continue my argument this way. And so we have to look back at least to verse 6 to see what he's talking about. And if we look in the the last sentence in verse 6 is this. This is the key verse. He says, and we, we God's people, we are his house. We are the house of where God dwells. We are God's temple, a temple made up of living persons. We are God's people if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Or we could reverse that. We could do the if clause first. He says, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast, then we are God's people. We are his house. We are the place in which he dwells. He's saying, this is really the doctrine of perseverance, okay? He's saying that if if we hold on, if we demonstrate a, a a loyalty to Christ, not only today, but five years from now and 10 years from now and 30 years from now, then then we're showing that we're truly God's people. We're the the place in which he dwells. Now, this doctrine can be be misunderstood. It could be misunderstood to say, oh, well, you know, it's by the dent of our own moral effort. If we just, if we persevere and hold on, then, then God rewards us with salvation. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, over the passage of time, a demonstration of salvation, that someone truly belongs to God, that they're really His people, is shown by them holding on to Him. And it it doesn't mean that there aren't dark nights of the soul and deep valleys that people go through, but for the long haul, there will be a demonstration uh, that that person truly belongs to Christ as they hold on to Him through their life. Now, this is paired in Scripture with many assurances of God's promise that He will hold on to His people And he will not let them go. We can look, for example, one of the best known is in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus has promised that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Or in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But at the same time, in Scripture, we see these, there's a category of superficial faith. There's a category of false faith, which is unmasked by the passing of time. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks of the day of judgment. He says, on that day, people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus doesn't say, I knew you and then I threw you out, but I never knew you. That, that, that the passage of time showed that that seeming loyalty was just a facade that was wiped away. But, but the scripture promises that God's true people will endure and that will be shown through the passage of time. But we're living in a world where we're, we have demonic enemies that would pull us away from Christ. We have rival communities that would seek to suck our loyalty away from Christ. We have our own fallen flesh which is leaning towards sin. And so in the midst of this, there, we, have the, we have the danger of a wandering heart, just like the, the recipients of the letter to Hebrews. And so the author of Hebrews is our pastoral guy here, and he says, in light of this reality, 
that, that the need to endure to the end. And in the light of all the dangers you face, in light of the promises God has made to bring you to the end, let me provide the first antidote to the wandering heart. What, what is the antidote to the wandering heart? And the antidote that he gives the first one is the word of God. God has given his word as a means of preserving his people. It was one of the things we sang in, the, in the, uh, one of the stanzas I was not familiar with, that, that his word makes our hope sure, that God's word brings to fruition the promise he has given, that he will persevere his people. His word brings that promise about. And so the author of Hebrews, being the past inspired pastor that is, he comes in, so in light of this reality, the need to endure, in light of God's promise to bring you to endurance, so, and he comes, he says, as the Holy Spirit Says, And he begins to quote Psalm 95. Let's look at that little phrase, as the Holy Spirit says. As I was working on this text, I, I had a hard time getting over that phrase for a few days because it was so, it was so huge in my mind. Because it, it, just, it just brings home, in the scripture, God speaks. The living personal God speaks to us, a living personal word. It's not that God spoke 3,000 years ago and now it's covered in mold and dust. But in the Word of God, the living person of God is speaking to you and to me as we read the Scripture, as we sing the Scripture, as we pray the Scripture, as we hear the preaching of Scripture, the living God is speaking to us. I think also, I was just overwhelmed in the Scripture. I was like, this this one half phrase, the Holy Spirit says, this is the doctrine of Scripture here. Scripture is God speaking. This is the doctrine of the Trinity in this one phrase. And I, I was attending a wedding with my wife. And I was meditating on this passage, and I just started to weep, thinking about God speaking to us. And she looks over at me, and she looks like, oh, honey, do you think about our wedding? You know, she's got this little sentimental look. She leans, takes my hand and leans over. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about Hebrews 3 right now. But, 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 um, but, the, but the reality is, every other book in the world we read and interpret. But really, the scripture, the Bible is a book that reads us. Right? The Bible is a book that interprets us. The Bible is a powerful word because it's a word where God speaks to us. There's a, let me tell you a brief story that I think illustrates this. We have a, in Louisville, one of the exciting ministries we've seen just kind of grow out of our church is people having a heart for immigrants coming to Louisville. And we've had a lot of immigrants come, a lot of them uh, people from Iraq. And we've seen our people move out to them and share with them and seen some of them come to Christ. And we ha- were having a baptism service for Iraqis, and it was bilingual, Arabic and English. And uh, I was attending this, and uh, one of the ladies being baptized, they were reading her testimony in English. And uh, the testimony began in the Middle East. Uh, when she was still living in the Middle East, an Arab-speaking Christian in her neighborhood came to her home. And she had in her home sort of a charm. She had writing in Arabic on the wall, uh, to, uh, sort of a good luck charm to protect her from malevolent spirits and evil, bad things that could happen to her. That, she was seeking for some sort of comfort and hope and, and, in the world. And, and this Christian lady, Arab Christian, came to her home and she spoke a word of truth to her. She pointed to the, the, the charm on the wall and she said, I have words more powerful than this. And, and then she gave her a New Testament. And that was the beginning of that woman's journey uh, to come to Christ. And I, I love the, I love, that makes our, our evangelism sound pretty uh, tame, doesn't it? Uh, I love that. I have words more powerful than this. 
And that's a word to Christians too. If you're, if you're here tonight and whatever script is running in your head that's contrary to the word of God, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's uh, resentment that you're unwilling to let go of, you say, you don't know what that person did to me. I can never forgive them. We can say on the authority of Scripture, we have words more powerful than that, right? Or if you're here tonight and, and your marriage is suffering and you're, you're, the script that's running in your head is saying, I don't, I don't think I can put up with that person anymore. I'm, I'm done with this. We can say we have words more powerful than that. Or if you're here tonight and there's some secret sin that you have that, that you're ashamed, you think, if anybody knew this, they would never even let me in this building. We have words more powerful than that in Scripture. The words of, the words of God cleanse us and the words of God change us and the words of God bring us and persevere us to home. We continue looking at the scripture. It's, it, it begins with a quoting of Psalm 95. It says, today. That's a word later on in 4.7. The author of Hebrews says, David, he quotes the psalm again. He says, David wrote this. He knows that David wrote this. David wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right? The, the exact words that the Holy Spirit wanted to be written. And he said, Today. Right? That, and that meant today 3,000 years ago when David wrote it. And it meant today 2,000 years ago when the author of Hebrews quoted it. And it means today, uh, October the 24th, 2010. And what it means is it, today is a moment of opportunity. There's a moment of opportunity to hear and believe and receive when God's word is spoken. There's always a moment of opportunity. A moment for the heart to be soft and to receive or a moment to be hard and to reject. And so the author says, today, if you hear his voice, right? When we hear scripture, we're hearing the voice of God. The voice of God speaks to us in scripture. And uh, I, I, I don't know you guys well enough for this to actually happen. But imagine that after the service, if I were more regular here and we we're talking, and I said, how's it going, brother? And, and someone were to say, well, my, my marriage is really suffering say, well, tell, tell me about that. Say, well, I, I'd never actually talk to my wife, and I don't actually speak to her. I just go somewhere once a week, and someone stands on a podium and talks to me 30 minutes and tells me what she says. We would say, well, that really is weird, and no wonder you're suffering. There's, there's no personal relationship there. And so I would say people who feel anemic in their spirituality, and they feel weak, one a diagnostic question is, well, are you listening to God's voice in Scripture? What, what does your life look like in the Scriptures? Are you soaking in it? It, and, and, and we have pastors in the room, and I'm a, I'm a professor who teaches New Testament. Can someone have a life, a life of teaching the Bible and yet be distant from hearing the voice of God? Absolutely. When it can become a job or perfunctory, or I've got to prepare the sermon, or I've got to prepare the Bible lesson, rather than sitting at the feet of the Lord and hearing His voice to us in Scripture and hearing what He would say to us. It says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Right, the author, the author of uh, of Hebrews, he 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 wants them to he wants them to realize when when the word of God is declared, there's a choice. Right, you're either hardening your heart and rejecting the word, or you're you're softening, receiving your heart. And he he doesn't he says he leaves no room for the blame game, like the original blame game with Adam and Eve. The woman gave it to me. The serpent deceived me. You know, I was stressed. Other people did this. If you knew, he says you the reason. You're hardening your heart. That's the reason that you're, you're being tempted to fall away from Christ. The, the responsibility lies with you. You have a hard heart. And I, I think that language of hardening is very, is very helpful because it speaks of a process, right? I have three small kids. We have lots of Play-Doh in the house right now. And if you leave Play-Doh out, 
it gets hard, right? But not instantly. It wouldn't sell very well as a toy if it instantly became hard, right? But if you leave it out, you know, a couple hours later, it's getting harder. And then the next day, it's hard as a rock. And that's the way our hearts are when we don't respond to God's word. When sin, when the temptation to sin comes and we entertain the temptation. And then we choose to entertain the temptation again. And then we speak words that further deepen us in that and choose actions. And then we find ourselves hardened and encrusted in, in defending or clawing to hold on to our sin because we've hardened our hearts to God's word. Luther said that you can't keep the birds from flying around your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And that's the, that's the Christian response to temptation, right? Is to, to say the word of God says this and therefore I, I reject the sinful temptations that are coming my way. The author of Hebrews goes on to recount some historical incidents from the, from the life of of Israel. And and he basically it's like he's saying, "All right guys, I know you're considering turning away from the living God." He's like, "Let me just show you how this worked out for some other people. It wasn't very good." Like so he's like, "Turn down the lights. Let's let's put the projector on here and let's let's see some stories from Israel." And uh, it would be analogous to me saying to my daughter who pulls out in the alley without looking, "I I made a little video footage of pushing your bike out in the alley with a mannequin on it as the neighbor's car comes. Let's see how this looks. Boom. You know, be like, do, you want, does, do you want that to happen to you? Now, don't worry. I, I didn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. But, but that's, it's, it's that dramatic kind of, ah, you know, the, I do, this is not the way we want to go. And uh, it's interesting. We don't have time to go into in detail, but he's quoting from Psalm 95. So you can look up Psalm 95 later. And the details in the psalm, he uses specific quotations from the Old Testament and specific place names. So it's very clear that he has two incidents in mind. The first one is at Massah and Meribah. They've just come out of the promised land. God's delivered them through the water, defeated their enemies, and they're just complaining because they don't have water to drink. Rather than looking to God who said he would provide for them, they're complaining. They want a new leader. They want to go back to Egypt. Wah, wah, wah. Complain, complain, complain. Then, we know they continue to do that over and over and over and over and over again. And rather than repeat all that, he chooses an incident at the end at Kadesh Barnea, just as illustrative of the whole, whole time. They get to the edge of the promised land. God still, even after all the rebellion, says, I'm going to give you the land. They send in 12 spies. Ten people come back and say, no way. And the whole, whole community rebels. No, we're not going to go. Go back to Egypt. We need a new leader. And, and God says, Done. Right? Forty years in the wilderness, you will be wandering. You people will not enter my rest. And, and think about this. These people who are being tempted to fall away from Christ, the author of Hebrews is bringing the word of God as that antidote to the wandering heart. And how is that an antidote? Because it lays before them compellingly the realities of, of the gospel, the fundamental realities of life. God is a holy God. And, and God has a holy anger towards sin, a pure and holy anger, not a human anger. We are deserving of his judgment. We have grumbled and rebelled against him. We could identify with the ancient Israelites. But in light of those realities, we're driven to, to look for our righteousness outside of ourselves and look to Christ and hold to Christ and never let go of him. And so the, the word of God, the one reason we as the people need to be in the word of God is it, it grounds us in those fundamental realities. God is holy. We're sinners. Salvation and righteousness is only found in Christ. And, and, and the scripture bathes us in that. We soak in that. We breathe in that. And we live in the bountiful land of the gospel. 
was a very good place for God's people to live and dwell. He goes on in verse 12 to move to the next antidote. The title of the sermon is Antidotes for the Wandering Heart. And there, there are only two that are given in this text. One is the Word of God. The Word of God is an antidote, a way that God preserves His people. The second is the people of God. The people of God. And, and really, the people of God are only a, a preserving agent of God because they, the Word of God dwells in them. Because the Word of God dwells in the people of God. They speak the Word of God to one another. They believe the Word of God. They pray and sing the Word of God to each other. So all of it really is the preserving power of the Word, both in and of itself and through, expressed through God's people. So we see in verse 12, I mean, pardon me, yeah, verse 12, he says, see to it. Now, that's, that's a way of saying, hey, listen up, right? This is important. Pay attention, right? Attention getter there. He says, see to it, brothers. We could say brothers and sisters. He's talking to the whole congregation. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's striking here, isn't it, that he's, he's saying, hey, you guys have to look out for each other. I was, when Brother Jason was sharing, I was like, this is really reminding me a lot of the author of Hebrews. That, you know, pastors in, in cooperation with one another and congregations looking out for one another. And a lot of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention are rediscovering this reality. There's been a, there's been a recognition that too many churches have become uh, somewhere you go on Sunday... And then you leave and there's no accountability and there are people who are on the rolls who died 20 years ago. And there, there are people who, who, you know, who left their wife and, and just decided to move to another town and they're still on the rolls. And there's a recognition, hey, we have, we're a family. We're not a corporation. We have to look out for each other. We have to speak truth into each other's lives. So whether it's a traditional Sunday school or whether it's a family group that meets during the week or whatever, there's, a real, there's real relationships. There's encouragement. There's accountability. There's, there's a willingness to speak into each other's lives and, and look out for each other, to have each other's backs, right? See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Look out for one another. It says, but encourage one another daily. And the only way we can encourage each other daily is if we actually know each other, right? If we come to one place and we just leave and we don't have phone numbers and we never see each other outside, we can encourage each other daily. But we need, how, how we desperately need that daily encouragement and that daily correction from one another. Um, the, uh, uh, one, one, one thing that, uh, one illustration of this I thought of when I was meditating on this passage was uh, from the animal kingdom. You know, animals instinctively know what we seem to have a hard time remembering, that there's safety in numbers. Right? If you ever watch National Geographic special, uh, I grew up watching those before there was cable TV or DVDs or Netflix or anything, right? That was the exciting thing. Sunday night, watch National Geographic. And uh, my parents didn't go to Sunday night church, you can tell. So the, uh, so, but you, it's always the same story, isn't it? You have the antelope herd, or you have the wildebeest herd, and then you have, I think we have a video, we have a, there we go, there's the wildebeest, and there's the lion in the background. The one, the one that wanders off by itself, the weak one, the diseased one, the foolish one, right? That's the one that gets picked off. Uh, Satan, the scripture tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. It, it, should, it, shouldn't, it should sadden us, but it shouldn't surprise us. But it seems that people on the periphery of Christian community are the ones that get picked off in, in temptation and sin. And can you be, is it possible to be the pastor sort of in the center of the, the church solar system, but, but really be peripheral on the edge? It's absolutely possible to be a pastor 
without having someone to confess sin to, without having someone to hold you accountable. And that's a, that, so you may look like you're in the center of the solar system, but you're more like Pluto. You're just kind of way out there. It's real cold. You know, you might not even be a planet. You're just kind of circling out there. And you, some, someone may, some, some gravitational pull could suck you into out, outer space. Right? So it's just, it's just a reminder that as pastors, as ministry leaders, it can be very lonely unless we're intentional. We have brothers, maybe through the association, maybe others where we're, we're in each other's lives. We have people we can confess sin to. We have people who will hold us accountable and who will speak truth to us. He says, do this so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Uh, we're approaching Halloween. And uh, sin is the original Halloween costume wearer. Right? Sin, sin does not announce to you what it is. Sin comes in very deceptive garb, which is why we need the Word of God to say, this is really what sin is. And we need the people of God, if we're not listening, to say, hey, look, this is what sin, what you're really doing. I think a good illustration of this is in the book of Proverbs. When I was in college, I memorized it. The, the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The Scripture tells the truth. It says the adulterous woman is hot. She is sensuous. She is desirable. It doesn't say the adulterous woman comes and her lips are scaly and she's nasty, right? The adulterous woman doesn't knock on your door and say, I'm the adulterous woman. I'm here to destroy your ministry, your family. Fiscally, you'll be wiped out. And I have a venereal disease as well. The, you know, the, the adult, sin doesn't work that way. Sin is extremely deceptive. It sneaks in. But the scripture says, but in the end, she is bitter as gall. Sharp as a double-edged sword. And so the scripture says, wipe all that masquerade away. This is the truth. And we need other people. We need the people of God around us too to guard us from that deceitfulness of sin. He says in, in verse 14, we've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Which is very much like what he said in verse 6. He's like, true faith perseveres. True faith perseveres for the long haul, holding on to Christ. And we can think about, we, we read in John chapter 10 how Christ said that his sheep are in his, in his hand and nothing can snatch them out of it. And I, I like to think of this, the word of God and the people of God as part of that tight grip of Christ on us. It's not the totality of it. God has all kinds of ways of preserving his people. But part of that grip that Jesus has on you as a Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, is, is the word of God and the people of God holding you to himself through those and other means. So be encouraged and be challenged as well to be in his word and to be among his people and to do an assessment and say, where, where am I? Have I, have I strayed? Am I the wildebeest? You know, have I strayed out from the community? Am I, am I in professional ministry to where I, I'm not sitting at the feet of, the, of God and hearing, hearing his voice in the scripture and hearing the Holy Spirit speak to me? Where, where is my heart in this? The author continues uh, at the end of this section to, uh, to quote the psalm again, Psalm 95, he quotes in verse 15. And then he just kind of drives it home by rhetorical question. He's like, all these people, all the things that, that God did for them. He delivered them out of Egypt. Moses led them out. Yeah, they had all the external trappings of religion. But through time, that was unmasked for nothing. And, and, and they were excluded from God's presence. And fundamentally, he says, the fundamental sin was at their core, they were non-believers. Look at verse 19. It says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. That is, at the core of their being, rather than believing what God said about who he was and who they were and, and what he desired of them, 
they rejected that. They were unbelievers, they, which led to their, their, their disobedience and their rebellion and all the things that flowed from that. This scripture reminds me of a conversation that Jesus had with the, with the crowds in his day. In John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, it's on the PowerPoint, uh, the crowds asked Jesus, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Now, what does God want us to do? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The fundamental thing that God wanted from the ancient Israelites and the fundamental thing that God wants from us is to believe. Isn't it interesting that the work that God requires of us is the non-work? The the irony, the work that he requires of us is the anti-work. The work that he requires of us is no work at all, but to admit that there's no work that we can do and that Christ has done that work for us. And we must rely and trust upon Him. When we read through this passage, it, it reminds us of all the story of Israel and how, how God rescued His people and brought them out. And, and then at Sinai, He began to make a covenant with them, right? And there's smoke and fire, I mean, lightning, thunder, all that. And even as God is displaying His glory on the mountaintop and He's giving them His perfect law, down in the valley, they're worshiping a golden calf and rebelling against Him. And that was repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for hundreds of years. And it seems that one of the main purposes of God giving his law to the Jews and to the human race for us to see is that fundamentally as sinners, we're unable to keep that law, right? We're bankrupt. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an audit. God's law is an audit of our lives and we are morally bankrupt. And, and it drives us to look outside of ourselves and say, if we're going to stand in God's holy presence then we need a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. And in fact, God, in, God prepared for that. In, in Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Christ was born, he promised, he said, this covenant I gave you, we'll call the old covenant. You broke it over and over again. You've broken it so many times. But I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And in that new covenant, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive you of your sins. And I'm going to write my word on, my, on your heart. And, and you're going to be called my people And I'll give you my righteousness. And if I can paraphrase, it'd be like, the old covenant said, do this, and you will live. But you couldn't do it, and you're dead, and you see that. But in the new covenant, I do it all. And on the basis of my unilateral gift of righteousness, I declare you my people, and I give you life, and I give you my righteousness, and I give you my forgiveness. And there's great comfort in that, people. There's great comfort to know that God has brought us into that realm of the new covenant, that realm, that good and bountiful land of His free gift of righteousness. And as we're in His Word and as we're among His people, we thrive in that land of His righteousness. Let me pray with us now. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Scripture. We thank You that Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He declared that His death inaugurated the new covenant. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That Jesus' blood shed on the cross ratified, declared um, us, his people, as forgiven, as your people, as called by your name. I pray that you will comfort your people and encourage them. I pray as we go out, we will be people of your word and we'll be people who gather with other Christians. And this will be an expression of the reality of your presence in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.